Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by my inimitable co-host, Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. What up, G. Kong? Oh, yo, yo, KK, how's it going? Everything very good in Beijing today. What's Another beautiful blue sky day. Yeah, it was. I think it was like 87 <laughs> was the AQI today. I mean, it's yeah. afternoon when I checked. Anyway, so this whole Chen Guangcheng thing has got you, um, this, this NYE thing has got you nice and incensed. I'm very much for looking forward to uh, your angry <laughs> energy. <laughs> I mean, I'll harness it well. So th- this this has been a summer of many departures among Beijing-based journalists. We got Tom Lasseter, McClatchy, and Megan Stack, who is formerly of the LA Times. They've set off for New Delhi, apparently because um, Beijing's air pollution wasn't bad enough for them and their boy. <laughs> uh, Mary Kay Magistad of PRI's The World Will Be Trading Beijing Smog for San Francisco Fog. We got John Garneau of Fairfax Media, uh, who publishes Sydney Morning Herald and um, The Age. Uh, he's going to go back down under. Mike Forsyth of mm-hmm. Bloomberg and his lovely wife, Leda Hung Fincher, who has graced our show with her presence on a couple of occasions. They're now headed to Hong Kong. So lots of farewells, but probably the greatest blow that English language journalists uh, or journalism will sustain this whole summer will be the loss of Evan Osnos, who has been writing rather prolifically for The New Yorker and amply filling what I think many of us would agree are the very capacious shoes left vacant by one P. Hessler. Uh, So we're absolutely delighted that Evan has made time to join us for one last installment of Seneca. Great to have you on, man. Thank you, Kaiser. Why are you leaving? Why do they always leave? Why? (laughs) I think it's become the thing to do now, though, actually. One doesn't want to write a leaving memo. Oh, no, well, you are going to write one. I mean, we're all going to enjoy it. No, I'm fighting the urge right now, actually. (laughs) Uh, well, but we've got all sorts of questions for you, and of course, we will read, you know, the it, because it is obligatory now, the Why I'm Leaving China essay, but today we're going to do it old school Seneca style first. Uh, we're starting off with a discussion of the big things in the news, like we used to before we started focusing on these abstract topics like Chinese medicine or whatever. Anyway, I want to focus in particular on two stories that, as I guess somebody who's, you know, going to be doing the U.S.-China thing, yeah. the transition thing, I'm sure you're going to get asked a lot about both of these things once you're back in the States. The first, of course, is... Jeremy's favorite topic du jour, the Chen Guangcheng uh, thing. Jeremy, why don't you fill us in? What's happening right now, and why is Chen upset with NYU, and why has he no real reason to be? (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) this has all gone on in the last week. Um, He uh, published a statement uh, in the form of a press release, bilingual English and Chinese, accusing NYU of bowing to pressure from the Chinese Communist Party, um, uh, that led them to basically rusticate him from their campus uh, and not uh, continue to support him. And he claimed this was due to the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. The man who basically was responsible for getting him to NYU, who is uh, Professor Jerry Cohen, who is the Chinese law professor that anyone in the field knows. Right, the, the, great, the, the, the doyen, really. The right. dean of the, the, the dean, yeah, Chinese doyen, law and world. And somebody that I've, you know, I've never heard a single person say a bad thing about There's him. There's nothing bad to be said of the But man. in the He's field of China studies and China watching, this is, you know, this is very unusual. <laughs> this is a backbiting, highly politicized field. There are not many people that, if you mention their name in the field of China studies, somebody won't have some b- bad well, thing to at least, say. Yeah, they'll do a little eye-rolling. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, Professor Jerry Cohen basically said that this was a bunch of And um, what has subsequently emerged is that the press release was written by a... uh, A A spin doctor for the right, right? Yeah, well, it's a a 
uh, media relations PR company run by a guy who, in fact, on his website calls himself, quoting somebody else, a street smart Republican spin doctor. And also on his website says that uh, is most well known for defending unpopular Bush era policies such as the Patriot Act, the War on Terror. I'm gonna have to change my website. Scooter that Libby. sounds very similar. I didn't realize that. <laughs> and Karl Rove. Right. Karl Rove. So one of Karl Rove's spin doctors basically is Chen Guangcheng's PR uh, officer. And it seems also that one can detect the, to me, rather sulfurous and malodorous <laughs> uh, stench of one pastor, Bob Fu, a uh, Christian activist who lives in Texas. Um, so it seems that Chen Guangcheng has fallen under the sway of some right-wing ideologues um, and for whatever reason at this point decided to go on the attack against NYU. And in his defense, as many, many people have defended him, he has arrived in the United States perhaps unprepared for the jungle that awaited him. Right, the political um, machinations. He of the- is a blind, self-educated peasant, basically, from a small town a village in Shandong. So one can certainly understand that he may be a little confused in Manhattan. Uh, but it does seem to be yet another case of an uh, exiled dissident uh, falling to pieces. So it wasn't just Jerry Cohen that weighed in. We had another piece um, um, that, that ran uh, just, I guess it was just yesterday at the time that we're recording it, uh, uh, Jeremy Page and Josh Chin from mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal kicked in. And they had uh, quotes from uh, a woman named Maddie Bekink, yeah. who was uh, formerly affiliated with NYU's U.S. Asia uh, Law Institute and served as actually special special advisor to Chen Guangcheng. Uh, and she wrote a, a um, you know, well, again, I'm backing up what Jerry Cohen said. I mean, Jerry had actually said, I mean, if I may use his name so familiarly. But Jerome, but I mean, Jerome, I don't know. Right. People seem to write, yeah, call him Jerry, Jerry right, in the right. press, too. So yeah. I, I, so his, he's a Jerry type. Yeah, he's a Jerry, definitely a Jerry yeah. type. Um, his, um, his, his, probably his best quote was that, you know, no, no political dissident has been received better treatment in America, uh, not even Albert Einstein. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what's interesting about a lot of these statements is that they are coming from people who spent the last year really um, doing what they thought was helping Chen Guangcheng get situated in the United States and help him try to navigate the system. And I think what comes through is a feeling of betrayal. But I mean, one of the lines that, that Jerry Cohen said, which I think is kind of meaningful, is he said, I've failed as a teacher because he sort of saw it as his responsibility to try to protect Chen Guangcheng from these kinds of the sort of vortex of partisan politics in the United States. And, you know, it's probably worth explaining the reason why Chen has gotten embroiled now with a very particular kind of voice in the Republican Party is because in China, after all, his issue was protecting women from forced abortions. And that, in the mind of your average Republican Party operative, that is manna from heaven. That is what you're telling me. I've got a Chinese blind lawyer who is opposed to abortions. And of course, nobody well, stops and says, abortions. that's the point. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, you wrote about this. I remember uh, you wrote a blog post. Yeah. Like I mean, that. I've always thought, I mean, in the sort of category of fantasy that, you know, he, Chen Guangcheng has been perhaps demonstrably the most non-cooperative figure in China over the last 15 years. And it is only a matter of time if he is embraced by the, by the Republican Party that he will turn around and say to them, you know what? I don't agree with you on this and this and this and this. So the romance that we're seeing right now, I think one thing we can count on is that it's not permanent. But I would, you know, I do think it's worth, you know, stepping back for one second. And, and in, you know, if <laughs> I think Jeremy has laid out brilliantly the prosecution's case here. And I'll say that 
the thing that is that is almost impossible for us to imagine is what it actually feels like to be Chen Guangcheng. I mean, I, I saw him in February. I went to NYU and interviewed him at his office. Um, and I realized I'd never seen him standing up. Uh-huh. Because, you know, I had first tried to go to his house eight years ago and had been in Lini in Shandong and had been kind of sent packing like everybody else who's tried to do it. And I'd always seen videos. I'd seen him. I talked to him on the phone when he was under house arrest. And I'd never seen the man. He's tall. Actually, no. No. He's He's small. Oh, yeah. That's, I'm very and, Which is surprised. kind of fascinating. You know, I, so like... There's he, so many pictures of him taken from a like, sort of low <laughs> angle looking up. I mean, he looks like a well, towering... Well, I mean, he's of, got, for whatever reason, I, I've never figured out the glasses situation, whether it's his wife has a particularly astute aesthetic sense, but the guy is always on the cutting edge of Him of, and Elton John, man. Technology. I mean, yeah, seriously. So, but the, I, I was just sitting there think, looking at this guy, realizing the kind of cosmic span of experience that he's crossed. And, you know, I, I just feel as if... If I was in a similar situation and I could handle myself with even a fraction of the aplomb that he's managed so far, okay, that would be an achievement. The fact that he's now, I think, um, offending people who really thought they were his friend is sad. Um, But I I do have a hard time indicting him. I think he's probably being told that if he doesn't look out for himself, that nobody will. And he spent his whole life looking out for himself. And he's in a... He's kind of in an impossible position. So I, I would like to make the case that I wasn't actually being a prosecutor. I wasn't making the case for the prosecutor. I am not going to defend him, though. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think one needs to necessarily indict him. But this is a man whose behavior is just unacceptable. And a lot of people in the China-watching community, the exile dissident community, the human rights community, can't bring themselves to say that. Mm-hmm. And this is not the first time this has happened with uh, uh, exiled dissidents. And to me, this is just not acceptable. If somebody steps out of line, tell them, you know, well, and a, I, I, because I they're past, they did something, um, you know, wonderful. Or, uh, or, mm-hmm. It doesn't give them a right to, to misbehave. To shit on um, the people. Who you know, I mean, right. one of the reasons what South Africans feel very, very strongly about Nelson Mandela is that he is somebody who went through a lot, 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 lot worse than, than Chen Guangcheng for much, much longer. And he managed to uh, retain his good sense and his common decency. And I, I, I'm sorry, just because you're a Chinese dissident, you don't get any slack in that regard from me. And, and I, think, I think of Wei Jingshan, who we were talking about before the podcast, and you might want to say a bit more about. And I think also of, of Chai Ling, two uh, exiled dissidents whose behavior in the United States is completely appalling. And for me, you know, you don't get slack. You know, they, you're absolutely right that we do them no favors by tolerating behavior that would be intolerable for Spare the rod else. and spoil the dissident. Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you look back over the last 10, 15 years, you look at the experience of these guys who come to the United States, whether it's Chai Ling or Wei Jingsheng, there's this pattern where they get there, there's a year or two, they're embraced, and then everything falls apart. And there's a kind of echo effect here. I mean, we were talking about this before, that if you go online right now, you can find a story from 2000 about Wei Jingsheng about two years after he'd been released, right. maybe three Leslie years after, right. after he'd been released from prison, and about how his life had fallen apart. Columbia University was in the process of kicking him out of an apartment. He, of course, thought it was political. Columbia said, it's no, it's because you've outlived your welcome here. And so there's this kind of echo effect. And I think, you know, there are people who put up with, with behavior from way that they regret now they never would have but i feel a little bit like my own instinct is to try not to judge chen in the light of these previous disasters and to try to give him the chance to be his own man the parallels uh, there, there are i mean i think we, we, we can all see some um, um one of the issues that that really kind of bothers me um 
there seems to be not a shred of evidence of any actual efforts on the part of the Chinese Communist Party to put the kibosh on, on Chen's activities or NYU's, you know. Um, I mean, it, it was kind of ironic to me that actually when he had decided to go to Fordham, nobody noticed the fact that Fordham actually operates a business school on the Peking University campus here. But what, what really bothers me is this. Um, there really is an effort on the part of the Chinese government to occasionally try to curb academic freedoms, you know, to reach that long icy handout and, and, and sort of choke off academic inquiry uh, even on American university campuses by doing things like denying access. And we've talked about this before. I feel like this is an instance of, you know, a very loud cry of wolf where it's going to now hurt the cause of people who have legitimate, you know, complaints about, uh, about Beijing's activities. That- well, you know, there's another fear here, too, which is that, I mean, I talked to a guy named Harold Koh two nights ago. Harold Koh was the legal advisor at the State Department right. when Chen Guangcheng went to the United States. Love that haircut. Yeah, and he was, <laughs> he played, he's actually the one who called John Sexton, who's the president of NYU, It made the first phone call, because he knew, he knew Sexton, and he says, would you consider taking this blind lawyer? And Sexton said, Yes. And so that was then that gave them the, the opportunity to then explore the possibilities to go to NYU. Coe's point was interesting. Coe said, you know, the real tragedy out of this is that any other school in America now would be, in effect, crazy to want to right. take in a Chinese dissident. And because they're going to see what happens. You put out your hand and it, and it comes back to haunt you. So that's that the, or you one feed the, him forever. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think those you, you've set out the two reasons why I sort of kind of got a bit mad about the whole uh, affair, because it seems to me, I mean, the, the whole everything is rife with hypocrisy. Um, the, 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 the China watching circle, the human rights community, you just can the hypocrisy is dripping like a McDonald's uh, deep fry <laughs> machine. It's going to make uh, the next time much more difficult. And, you know, will Mr. Ko even want to make the phone call himself if that happens again? No, he'll be thinking, well, will the next Mr. Sexton even bother to take the call? Right? Yeah. So, you know, we've arrived at agreement, uh, and I want to do one more uh, quick, Harmony reigns at the quick, quick Harmony reigns. For a rare instance of him. Uh, uh, the other topic that I wanted to quickly talk about, of course, is the continuing saga of Edward Snowden, the Booz Allen Hamilton Systems Administrator, who was seconded to the other NSA, exile. The other, right, 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 the other, the other exile. Yeah. And then, again, a story that I'm sure you're going to be, you know, uh, following pretty closely even after you make uh, the uh, the move to Washington. Um, so has this really changed things in U.S.-China bilateral relations, Evan? Has it changed the dynamic? No, as far as I can tell. Okay. And, I mean, the reason I don't think it has is because, for one thing, Beijing has not intervened yet. I mean, the fact is, if Beijing does something, the Beijing government does something visible, and all of a sudden Snowden becomes, if if Beijing becomes the Ecuadorian embassy to Snowden's <laughs> Julian Assange, then then we're into a whole new. Well, that's just that. Territory. I mean, I cannot see them doing. I can't. <laughs> I, I find just, that I find that very hard to imagine. We, we we all. I mean, you know, rationally, if if we can assume that Beijing will be behave, or the the best thing for them to do is nothing. Right? Wait, absolutely. Wait, yeah. Just wait it out. Do and, nothing. But I think your point, your question was a really interesting one, which, which was, does the revelation of NSA spying and CIA spying of the kind that Snowden has described, does that undermine our moral position in the United States and in the diplomacy? And I think on that, on that level, it's made it a lot more complicated. But I think the distinction that matters to me is the distinction between 
espionage as espionage and uh, and cyber hacking as theft. And so far, Snowden is not saying that the United States has broken into Chinese companies in well, order to try to bring home. Or would code. they go after <laughs> Baidu box computers? Evan, I mean th- that distinction matters to you, but I think for the you know general public. It seems to me difficult enough for people to even make the distinction between hacking and censorship in China. I don't think people, uh, you know, are that detailed. Right. It's the government's with people, right? Which right. Pe- which people are we talking about? You mean people sort of around the world who are trying in to China, yeah, yeah. even the, in the United the States? I mean, yeah. the, the the global Joe douchebag, you know, the the guy who maybe doesn't read the New Yorker. Uh, oh but, no, no, we have him actually. Oh, you have him. I checked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, so the, it takes the iPad edition. <laughs> Evan, um, you, you, we were talking earlier uh, about about the Charlie Rose appearance that, that President Obama just yeah. did. It was just a couple of days ago, and um, he he spoke very candidly about that. He, he said that look, um, you know, cybersecurity. Um, I mean, look, espionage, cyber espionage is something that we all, I mean, he basically tacitly acknowledged that everyone engages in this. You know, when China goes after his talking points for, you know, some tree with Japanese prime minister or something, that's that's something that we expect that they're going to do. And we're going to sort of, you know, not go after them or hope to curb them. on this Yeah, way. he said, in fact, we're trying to do the same thing. I mean, right. he didn't, but that was the implication. Right, that was the implication. But what he says the United States is not willing to tolerate is going after technology in the heart of Apple computers that's going to eventually be uh, important for our economy. I mean, he, he's making a distinction, whether that, that's because he's retreating from a more kind of morally high-handed position, maybe. I mean, he's, you know, Snowden has kind of deprived him of some of that ground. Um, I don't think... So it's so my, it, my, my way of thinking that does change the dynamic. I, I mean, I think if you, if, you ask, if you sat down with the people who are actually negotiating this relationship... None of this is a surprise. The Chinese certainly weren't surprised by anything. I mean, the, what do we know? We know that the United States was hacking into public institutions in Hong Kong and China, universities, companies, and individuals that they were tapping into. Right. Backbone servers. Right. Backbone networks, servers, yeah. basically sort of the big pipe rather than going after individual users. I think that surprised probably nobody in the technology community. I don't think that the that the outrage that we're hearing sort of publicly is that people are surprised. I think it's just the level of detail is... Uh, is alarming and nobody likes to hear about. It. Nobody, nobody likes to hear that they're being hacked. Right. By the I United think the, the Chinese reaction was, you know, what you're surprised. Yeah. I'm surprised that you're surprised. Right? I mean, I yeah. I mean, if you look at the Weibo response, which is arguably the most cynical um, body of of, uh, of not even uh, arguably people it, on, it, the, people the on the planet. <laughs> you know, their first reaction was was more or less like Snowden, you're coming here. I mean, have you read the newspaper? <laughs> Well, I mean, you were on Dorothy Wickington's political scene podcast for The New Yorker ahead of the, um, the Sunnyland Summit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and But it was also just before the Snowden revelations were made public by The Guardian in The Post. So uh, would your tone have been different? I mean, you were pretty high-handed about that. I mean, talking about the something, you know, how we were going to give, give – how Obama was going to give C a pretty stern dressing down. Over. Yeah, but that was just no, – it was an auto You were just I talking. Just come, <laughs> yeah, moralizing. No, I mean, I think – I don't think actually that uh, – um, <laughs> do they install that chip? Is that where, where you get it? Yeah, when you go into American journalism, they say, do you, they you install know, the yeah, chip. Yeah, do you want the left high-handed yeah. position or the right high-handed right. position? I actually, um, I don't think it really changed at all what happened inside that summit room. Okay, okay. I mean, I don't, maybe, tell me I'm wrong, but I don't really see, uh, one thing Snowden didn't happen until afterwards. Um, Snowden happened sort of during, didn't it? I think they were already on the bench. They were already the on the bench. That, oh, yeah. In any event, my, doing like their, point, their famous Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. Your point, point is more interesting right. than what I'm clinging to here, which is to say that does it sort of chart this on a new trajectory? 
on some level it does, but I actually don't think that the stuff that Snowden's talking about... And let's remember, Snowden began his revelations by talking about spying on U.S. citizens. That's right. He's not talking about the U.S. hacking into China. And the United States has never cared one iota that China is hacking into its own citizens. <laughs> All the United States cares about is that it's China's hacking into the United States. So if you're talking about equivalence, well, then it, then we have to look at what it is that the United States is getting out of China. And so far, we're not getting Baidu's source code as much as we may be trying. <laughs> anyway, um, you, I, I know a guy who works there. Yeah, I, I do too. I do. Yeah, he, he could be had for a price too. But, you know, the, it's interesting to compare this against WikiLeaks, I think, for a few reasons. I mean, yeah. one is that WikiLeaks didn't seem to affect the U.S.-China relationship at all. Right. Right. There was just no difference, right? No matter what. Well, that was just diluted by the, the sheer volume of, of, of stuff in there. I mean, the China stuff was relatively uninteresting in, in the. Well, and it gave some picture. credibility to Li Keqiang. I mean, honestly, people came away saying, "Well, he's a." Well, know, he's and Xi Jinping is kind of a nice guy. He likes American movies, right. Right. you know. So right. yeah, I you know, but I I suspect that in a couple of years we might say the same thing about this that uh, it will turn out to be not More even a blip in the relationship. How does, this, how does this affect Julian Assange? <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. He's got to be hating oh. Ed Snowden, right? Such an egomaniac. He must yeah. hate Snowden. We can only Snowden. assume. Yeah. He's sitting there going, Snowden! Snowden. Oh. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is... Shaking his fist. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I wonder whether he's kind of deliberately trying to give Snowden bad advice. You know, you know what you should really do, Ed? <laughs> the Ecuadorians are lovely hosts. <laughs> I've heard the Ecuadorian embassy in Beijing is lovely. It. That's all I'm saying. I, I'm sure he must be enraged. I, I remember him in an interview uh, a few years ago saying, Assange, that um, it was very dangerous for other people to try and set up a, a WikiLeaks type of organization mm -hmm. because, you know, you didn't understand the crypto and this and this mm -hmm. and this and this. And, you know, I suppose what Snowden has proved is that you really don't need crypto to you have leaks. Drive, you just need a guy who has access to the right documents and you don't need anything else. So WikiLeaks essentially was just a creature of its time. And he may, Assange may have seen a little bit earlier than other would-be leakers the sort of global uh, potential of it but uh, he hasn't really left anything of value i'm just hoping they do a stage show in iceland i would go <laughs> to see that <laughs> hey dude you know i have a girlfriend who pulled out well she maybe you know taking me to court for rape but uh, <laughs> i mean we're, we're here here we're gathered here today to bid adieu to our dear evan um so, I mean, I, I guess I, a lot of people are probably wondering, um, maybe we should do a little backstory. You, you, you came to China. I guess I met you mm -hmm. when you were still writing for the Trib, right? The yeah, Chicago I was Tribune. writing for the Chicago uh, Tribune. And what year was that? What, that would have been, what, 2000? I came in 2005. All right, 2005. And then you, you went back to the States for a brief while and then came back. No, right? I was here. I was here you, the whole you, time, You were here actually. the whole time. I, okay. I worked from, for the Chicago Tribune starting in 2005, and, and then I started writing for the New Yorker in 2007. Uh, okay, and okay. did a couple pieces while I was sort of basically moonlighting and then went full-time at the true at the new at yorker the new in yorker. 2008 okay great uh, now um, what was it like though initially i mean i'm sure that everyone wants to know filling the the the, the outsized footwear of, of mr hustler he purchased a deodorizer so they were clean and fresh by the time <laughs> i got the i don't footwear. i don't believe that with all the hiking and running he did <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm just glad they weren't those individual toe shoes that would have been, very that would have been really gross yeah. Yeah. yeah you know we should be able to spring for more than that yeah no really though um, um to be honest, I, I, it's a great question and i i i never thought about it you, um, you you never sat thought up set up there i mean you know people I, are drawing comparisons the guy is i mean you know like, yeah, we know. no, he, he looms large yeah, in he China. Does. And I think, you know, and, Pete's, and, and, Pete and, and I have talked about it. it, the joke 
the funny thing is that, of course, when he started writing for The New Yorker, everybody said, how are you going to ever live down Mark Saltzman? I mean, he just he wrote this magnificent book, Iron and Silk. And Pete was it was driving him nuts because, you know, this had been um, he felt like he was doing something very different. And, you know, I, I actually felt I was kind of. The best thing that ever, the only reason I was ever able to write for The New Yorker was because Pete had done what he'd done, which was that he created an expectation inside the magazine, and I think among readers, that we needed writing about China. And for whatever reason, we weren't doing it in India. There wasn't this person doing it in South Africa. You could make a case that we should have somebody in Brazil. But, um, you know, so that was very important. And then we just had a slightly different taste. So I was kind of writing um, different I'd say sorts very, of stories. I'd say very different taste. I mean, yeah. I, I sort of, for me, it was kind of country and city in a way. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. But yeah, I, I, I always, right. you know, you know I mean, Pete, Pete does have a decidedly country bent to. Yeah, I mean, completely country he, bent. He talks about he likes, he prefers the company of rural people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think part of it was that I got here at a very different moment. I mean, we, he and I have talked about this, but basically he, he got here at a time when the dominant motif, I mean, the real sort of beating heart of China, it was still more than 50% rural. Um, that changed well in over, 2008. Yeah. Right. And the internet was a non-factor. If you're trying to understand how people saw themselves, the rest of the world was almost a non-factor. It was a kind of these dim sort of hazy images in the distance, metaphorically, I mean, sort of how people viewed the planet. And then the period that I started writing for the magazine starting in 2007 Everything that I everything that I encountered had this dynamic of China and the rest of the world, China and other people, and urbanization, the internet, urbanization. Yeah, uh, exactly. And in a way, um, the Olympics, even the the sort of event that coincided with your starting in the New York, yeah. was the the sort of uh, crystallization of that change. You know, in some I'm, yeah, it was. It more was and more, I, I realize how what a year 08 was for, mm. for, for you know China in the world. Completely. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. with the financial crisis and everything, I mean, it really was a real water. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, um, in a way, I mean, you, you, if you'd been writing about the internet in 2005 as a, an essential fact of life, you were talking about it for a, a, a confined part of the population. I mean, it really was a big deal for them, but it was still a limited part tiny, of the population. Right. Today, I mean, the, the, when we talk about the internet and China, we no longer talk about it as, oh, well, we're just talking about upper middle class urban. You know, you don't have to put that kind of macro key at the end. No, you kind of you kind of ought to still. I, I mean, you can certainly say, look, it's a limited population, but it's it, it impacts people. I mean, I, sure. I, there's a, I mean, I'll give you an example. This is just about sort of a, an unusual case that I came upon recently. There's a guy who works in the Hutong where I live, um, who works for the city sanitation department. So he, he's one of these guys who wears the orange outfits. You probably see them around town. They're sort of an orange jumpsuit and a hat. And he has a broom and he sweeps up. And I was out there recently with a neighbor who, uh, and we're chatting, and the neighbor I like, he's a nice guy, but he's a bit of a bully to some of the people around. And he was kind of bullying the guy with the broom. And he was saying, you know, you are not qualified to take part in this conversation. We are having a sophisticated conversation and you don't have the education to do it. Come back when you can speak when you can speak standard, standard Mandarin. <laughs> and, and then eventually he went inside his house and I was out there with the sweeper, the sweeper whose name is Chi and he said, you know, he doesn't know, but I'm an educated man and I am educated because I read and I've educated myself. And in fact, I host an online forum about modern poetry. And if you go on to Baidu and you search for me, you'll find me. Wow. And sure enough, I went online and there he is. And he is the, you know, the 
banjo, I guess, of a of a of a BBS on the subject of, of, of yeah of of uh, you know an, an online um, forum about modern Chinese poetry, and he has this in, entire interior life that didn't exist for him eight years ago. It just was not available to him. He didn't know other people like him. He was by that's, himself. That's, Evan, this whole business about living in a hutong and having these, you know, quaint neighbors, um, this is all like it's poetry. It's you know, affectation. A, 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 yeah, it's an authentic fetish. Yeah, I'm so excited you know. to finally get it. Yeah, yeah, real author- authenticity Indians. consists of living in, uh, you know, a, a, a so-called small community of like 50 uh, 20-story buildings where nobody knows each other. Yeah, right. You live in right. Wangjing for the, the <laughs> true Chinese experience. Yeah, it is, it is a remarkable thing that you being actually, in a hutong. You yeah. actually want to live in like swanky Central Park. <laughs> I've been trying and uh, trying to move up. I actually have moved the wrong direction. Too My right. very first place I lived in China was called the Global Trade Mansion. Uh, I, I know the Global yeah. Trade Mansion. Yeah, yeah well, a, I can't uh, afford it anymore. Going, going down ever since. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to talk about your book. Uh, you have... Yeah, themed it around this idea of ambition, which strikes me as a terrific organizing idea. So talk about what the good and presumably also the the bad uh, ways in which ambition manifests itself in, in, in yeah. contemporary China. And also just briefly introduce the book, yeah. when will it be published? Yeah, sure. I, um, the book that I'm writing, which I've been on book leave for the last nine months writing, I sort of hide it by doing blog posts. But actually, I've been out of the magazine for a long time writing this book. And um It'll be out next spring, spring of 2014, and uh, it's being published by Ferris Strauss. And the it's a, a work of nonfiction about a number of people that I've been following, and the central dynamic of their lives is the power of aspiration. And you use the word aspiration, not ambition. Yeah, I've actually sort of thought a lot about this question and gone around talked to a lot of people about it. Ambition in Chinese has a negative connotation. Very strongly so, yeah. And it has... Yes, you start to see it's actually really interesting. You start to see it now on self-help books, like Ye Xin, which means literally wild heart. Used to be the worst thing you could say if you were wolfish, if somebody was uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you yeah. were you were wolfish and careerist, and probably you were putting other people uh, down by your own professional ambition. You've anticipated my now. Question. You actually do see it popping up on, if you go on Dong Dong and you look for book titles. It'll you'll find a title, for instance, how to cultivate a wild heart in your child, and so on. <laughs> but Really, the idea—I mean, I, but I still think for most people, the idea is kind of unpalatable. And but what's what's not unpalatable is the idea of of will and determination of mm-hmm. jure in jure, some sense—a yeah. very Confucian, you know, concept. And for a long time, people in China, either because of poverty or because of politics, were kind of incapable of pursuing their own imagined aspiration, whether it was to become a modern poet while being a street sweeper or um, to become. Um, a blind lawyer while living in a village in Shandong. Not to become blind, but to become a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, we don't know an amazing fact is that 90% of the people in China who are blind, uh, if they work, they work in massage, right, or right. acupuncture. And so the kind of audacity to imagine that this was even possible. And there is a, there's a concept in sociology called the capacity to aspire, and that is actually important when you're trying to understand the trajectory of a country, that before people can even imagine the possibility of a different life, it's impossible. It's the capacity to aspire. Yeah, it's the capacity to even believe that you can do something different. And in the period of time I've been here, if I had to identify the one thing that has changed, it is that in so many different ways, the people that I've met have um, been willing to imagine that they're in control of their own fate. And then, of course, you run up against 
the outer limits of what's possible. And really the core of this book and the stories that I tell and they sort of weave in and out over the course of a long time are the ways in which some people's aspirations are able, they're able to achieve what it is they're going for. And in other people, in other cases, they run up against the limits of either the system or themselves. And that's the central tension in life today. Can you at least reveal who a couple of these characters are that you're following? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in some cases, these are people who I met in the course of writing about other things and other people, and they were sort of minor figures until I started to really get to know them. There's a guy who I'm thinking of, especially who's, who's um, a young guy named Michael Jong from uh, from a, a, a town called coal mine number five is actually where he's from <laughs> i met him when he was a student of of lee young a crazy english lee young wife beating lee young wife beating lee young and he was a he'd been a security guard at lee young's camp because he couldn't afford the um the usurious price tag attached to um lee young's english lessons you know to people who don't know crazy english is this huge english teaching cult cult slash industry <laughs> slash you know Anyway, it's and it's um, for a while. It you know he used to teach to these huge stadiums full of people, and I met Michael, and you know that was about five years ago, and he was completely and totally infatuated with Crazy English, and it took over his whole life. I mean, you'd go into his room and he'd have pictures of Lee Young on the wall, and he he believed so completely that if he could master English, it would change his life, and that. You know, he would no longer be the son of a coal miner. He would be this kind of actualized individual. He'd be a person who could totally set the course of his own life. And in a way, you know, it, it, it's not quite as, it's not delusional. I mean, in a sense, the truth is that actually English in China can change your life. I mean, if you speak amazing Absolutely. English, I mean, you can catapult yourself from a village into a completely different world. And that's what he wanted to do. And so over the course of the years I've been following him, he's had his ups and he's had his downs, and he keeps a, a diary. He's uh, he Presumably writes a lot. In English. Uh, he writes in Chinese, actually, okay. um, and then he also writes in you English. Tell him to... <laughs> well, some of his materials. He's a very good English speaker, as a matter of fact. His some of his materials that he writes for his students sometimes kind of betray what he really believes. So I was just thinking oh. of a dialogue that he wrote. Person number one says, "Hi, how are you doing today?" Person number two says, "I'm fine, thank you." Person number one says, "Do you love me?" And person number two says, no, I only love people with money. Wow. And this, in a sense, to be perfectly honest, is kind of Michael's persistent trouble. And he's run into this over and over again, which is that he, you know, it's a chicken or the egg problem. He can't make enough money to, to get married or to meet somebody. Um, and he feels kind of frustrated. And he's, um, he's trying very much to make it into the middle class. He's kind of got his fingernails on the bottom rung of the middle class in China. Mm -hmm. And he sees people all around him moving up and he's desperate to join them and if you read the book you'll find out what happens you've done a great job selling it I'm, I'm gonna the only trouble it. is it's not finished yet uh, well so Jeremy you I thought you were I thought you were finishing it it seems to be a terrible miscommunication so it's about broadening horizons, but it's also about in encountering the walls. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I see this 
the most powerful and the most appealing thing about China. I don't care, you know, where you are, but I think a lot of us who live here and who really love this place would agree that it's this incredible drive within the Chinese people to, to, to really make something of themselves individually and for their family or for whatever their community is, however they define it. And then there are these structural limits that they run up against, whether you're, a, you know, if you're somebody trying to publish a magazine, you run into those limits. If you're somebody trying to start a business and you don't have the right connections, you run into those limits. Sure. Um, and in a whole series of ways, I've kind of watched that unfold in these lives. I'm really excited to read this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but, okay, so um, you, you've earned something of a reputation for. I, mean, I, I expect that you're going to be touring for the book, right? And then you'll you'll be back here. Inshallah, I, I hope. let's hope. Yeah, yeah I will be back. Yeah, I should say by the way that you know this whole leaving thing is a bit of a charade because I'm still going to come back to write stories when I find something that rings my chimes. Yeah. Well, good, good, good. And then you know when you do. Drop him in. Yeah, here, here. So I was going to say, you, he's, Evan, I think it's fair to say, right, Jeremy? He's earned a reputation for fairness. I mean, for being a reporter at the very least who has, you know. That won't no, serve me well in Washington, I'm afraid. I better abandon <laughs> yeah. that. But, you know, you, you, you haven't made the, the official party hit list of, 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 you know, hostile foreign forces or anything, right? I haven't been asked to tea too often mm-hmm. or anything. Um, at least empathy, I, I think, for the notional Chinese people. I think that's already in evidence from just the descriptions you've had of your book. Mm. Um, if you were to dispense a bit of, of advice, of sage wisdom, uh, to a cub reporter just starting out in his reporting career here in China uh, on how to avoid the pitfalls of, of, of bias, mm. uh, what would you say? I mean, in a way... Um, Not that I'm suggesting that the Western media is inherently biased or anything. I just... You know. <laughs> Yeah, you hid that really. Well. Uh, I hid that well. Yeah. I, I actually don't think it's it's that difficult to do. One of the great charms about working in this country is that outside your editors know nothing, in, unless you have the misfortune. And I may I say this, you know, my editors and I joke about it. I say it with great affection that unless you have the misfortune of working for an editor who had been the China correspondent, which is an affliction no reporter should ever have to endure because you don't want to work for somebody who's previously had your job. The reality is, is that it's up to you to kind of set the, the moral parameters of what it is that you're going to write about and, and how you're going to regard this place. And I, I actually have never really gone into it thinking it's up to me as a reporter to say um, – that you know that I'm going to point my finger and say I accuse this is uh, this is a totally repugnant situation. Except that you can never shy away from something that's that's uh, that if look if you see something that you would find as 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 morally objectionable here as you would at home, you absolutely need to stand yeah, up right. and shout. That's right. And and I mean it's funny I get about half uh, when the email comes in I get about half and half when it comes to people saying you're a hopeless panda hugger and you know or you should get out of there you, there's nothing that you hate more than China that's that's why I say you have a reputation <laughs> I mean that's you, always the measure if you're getting half and half I mean it's, it's I mean a I, good I do sign. think the hardest thing I mean I I don't know the hardest thing about writing about China is the proportions it's about understanding how much does one person's experience tell you about the overall. Uh, trajectory of this country. How much does Cheng Wangcheng matter? Right. Tell us. I mean, how much or does he Ai matter? Wei, right? Or, or, or Ai Weiwei. Right. And actually, I would often end up, uh, in, in that debate, I often end up arguing that Ai Weiwei matters more than other people would say he matters. Because I think that it ma- that a government actually enacts a moral vision in the way that it acts towards people. It, it, it does express uh, a, a certain view of 
of its citizens in the way that it treats them. And that matters to me. I think it's worth writing about and writing about in detail. Uh, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, this is a related question, really. Jeremy and I, uh, with Jeremiah Jenny, we did a show about uh, what China is getting right, uh, where we you know, mm-hmm. ensured our renewed visas, at least. So now we're trying to ensure that Evan is allowed to come back. <laughs> right. We're, so so and, and, and in, in that spirit, what's, what would be on your list of things that you think that, I mean, specifically the Chinese leadership deserves some props for? I mean, I think if you, I mean, look, if you want to go to the really basic stuff, I mean, I will, and I mean elemental. I don't mean that in a reductive way. I mean, like, the simple fact is that people today are living longer, healthier, more educated lives than they were uh, 25 years ago. And and it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that. And I think you can go the other direction sometimes, and you can take the Bill Gates view, uh, which is that that really is what, that matters, that crowds out political issues, that, it, you know, you as long as a country is improving people's lives then then that's really vital and i mean that that's that that's, that's everything thing, right. um which i don't think any of us would share I mean, I, no i mean i think you have to take a kind of thicker conception of prosperity and say mm-hmm. that i think because certainly the chinese people are starting to and say it's it's more than just if i have enough food on the table okay. it's actually about whether i feel like i'm dignified as an individual so beyond that basic level of yes you know they've provided a certain you know level of, of, of increased prosperity and i'm still continually amazed when i run into people for instance who are um, you know, I mean, I, the number of people, we've all run into people who will say to us, oh, I, you know, I scored on the Gaokao. I was the, you know, the third highest scoring person in Hunan or something unbelievable like uh-huh. that. And Which as long really, as you know, those... population of like, you know, France, right? It's yeah, crazy. exactly. Um, and I haven't met the, met the fifth smartest person in France, but I bet he's insufferable. Uh. But my point <laughs> is that it's kind of amazing to me that there is a mechanism that allows people to um to transform the kind of the orbit of their lives that for me is still the thing that keeps me here that must be a part of your book i'd imagine because i've as a non-american one of the things that has struck me from my earliest days here is how, how similar chinese French. are to americans oh i totally in, yeah in, in, the american dream is very understandable to chinese people because most chinese people feel the same they want to through hard work, make their lives better. <clears throat> Absolutely. You know, but that, it doesn't matter. I mean, people like Cheng Wanchang, I mean, he is un- he's unusual in a way, but he's not that unusual. I mean, there are a lot of people, even some of them working at Dunway, who come from, like, small <laughs> places in Shandong and just completely escape mm-hmm. their, you know, what should have, you know, in Europe maybe would still be their, their station in I life. I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's, it, it really is. I mean, the Americans and Chinese, these enormous continental economies that have this illusion that they can kind of retreat into isolation, that it's okay to speak but one language. Um, I mean, it, it's, I'll tell you, if you want to understand China in this day and age, one of the most valuable things to read is Mark Twain because he was writing about the United States at a certain moment in its upbringing, you know, the late 19th century, early 20th. It was this kind of muscular moment in American life when people really did go from being, um, from you know, rights. a button salesman in the countryside to being a guy in downtown uh, with gilded furniture. It, so much of what I've kind of come to understand about this place comes from the American experience of the 19th mm-hmm. century. And I, I think there's something, I mean, there's just something really exciting about that. But actually. right, also in, in in that fundamental, you know, be- notional belief, at least in that that this, that there are meta- opportunities for for you to rise through ambition, through hard work, And I mean, yeah. and, and you know, lest we veer off into Pollyanna stuff, I actually think that the most interesting dynamic, and so many of the crises we see in China, these kind of, you know, however many acts of unrest it is whether it's an environmental reason or a land-taking or a 
um, some other kind of precipitating reason. Usually, if you dig down, what you find is that it was the collision between one person's aspiration and the system, and that the system at that moment was unable to accommodate that aspiration. And that is also in your book. <laughs> yeah, that's the book. Right. Oh, <laughs> I don't even. I don't need to write it. Yeah, seems exhausting. Yeah. Just listen to this podcast and don't don't bother. <laughs> yeah, transcript. <laughs> um, looking now back on your years with New Yorker in China, uh, what are a couple of stories that you're proudest of? Is there a story that sticks out that you're going to remember? You're going to tell your grandchildren? I, I don't know about proudest, but I can tell you the one that I, that I had a really probably the most fun doing, and that was. It's terrible to say that my most fun story in China was outside of China, but I Macau. No, I was going to say I went on a tour of Europe with Chinese tourists. Oh my tourists. gosh, that was a wonderful story yes. I, I very much enjoyed that I, it was very much in my head as i as i uh, last year you know we by these directors were a sophisticated lot by and large but you know we all went on uh, we t- had our directors meeting in, in northern europe it was the tour guides oh, yeah. specifically i mean the, there needs to be somebody needs to write a <laughs> book of you know, european history as understood by by like citic you know, or what, 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 the yeah, CITS CITS, travel, CITS, right? CITS, CITS travel agents or well, it was just um, funny i mean i you know, so I, I basically it was a 10-day trip across Europe, um, five countries, 30 people on a bus, and uh, and I and and me, and it was this. But what was interesting, the guide was kind of amazing because, um, I mean, he knew more certainly about Luxembourg than most Luxembourgians could probably casually mention. I mean, we would no matter where we went, he could tell you interesting things. Like some bourgeoisie? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. That would be appropriate. So I was kind of, on the one hand, I was sort of amazed. But then also there was a kind of bluntness to the way he would describe things. So he would say, all right, here, here, let me explain to you how, how Europeans go on vacation. This is him talking to the group. He would say, what they do is they go off to some place and their skin turns red and they come home. And they go back to work, and everybody gets to see that they've been on vacation because the skin's, you know, they've gotten the sunburn. And I thought about that for a second, and I was like, well, that's certainly a distilled way to describe it. But it's not wrong, actually. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, in some level, that is a little bit, you know, oh, oh, you, oh, you've been traveling, I see. You, you, you know, you've got braids in your hair or something. So I sort of liked his view of the world. My, my favorite moment on our trip was we were in Oslo, and the, the, the guy on the bus stands up and says, you might notice looking around at, at people in their 40s and 50s that they, they look like mental retards. Uh, that's because of a racial purity law that was enacted in where, where there was a lot of inbreeding among Norwegians uh, during this, this period of time, and a lot of them ended up with severe mental handicaps. Look over there, for instance, at that woman. <laughs> you know, all, I mean, to, to our credit, we, we were like, what the f***? <laughs> I mean, we all started, you know, yelling at the guy. Well, I mean, but, see, but part of these things is that it's a little bit of a game of telephone where it's, you know, it was probably written down in some form or another, and then it was translated into a, you know, a probably shorter version and a shorter version, and then into Chinese, and then back into English, and then back into Chinese. Okay. <laughs> that may be the explanation. I have to say, that story, I think I, I actually tweeted about it at the time because I thought, you know, you, Evan, you've, you've, you've spent time in Baghdad. You've been to Afghanistan. This was enough hazard. I thought, you know, there's no worse or harder or braver reporting job in the universe than going on a 10-day tour around Europe on a Chinese package. The God of Gambler's piece. That was, I mean, you were in harm's way at some point along. That was, yeah, that was an interesting story because there was a moment when I had to go see somebody and I didn't know how the reaction was going to be. I was going to meet a guy who had been chased by the triads and uh so this is a story about a a gambler 
who's a barber from Hong Kong Another who actor. decided to beat the house. <laughs> yeah, and he and he decided to beat the house in Macau with the help, um, depending on who you believe, uh, with the help of a triad, perhaps. But anyway, the ended up uh, the, the triad decided it's called the Wohop Toe decided uh, that they needed to. Um, kill his friend to send a message to him that he needed to return some money. He'd won about a hundred million U.S. dollars. Sorry, a hundred million Hong Kong dollars. Okay, and um, and he wasn't supposed to. The triad, which ran part of this casino, believed that he was he shouldn't have won that money. They knew something. They thought something was fishy. Long story short, he'd never given an interview, and I got very lucky. One thing led to another. One person pointed me to another, to another, and eventually we got to uh, got a phone number for him, and I went out to go see him, and I just. He was living under the protection of a different triad at that point, and he was kind of laying low. And I sort of knew that I, if I didn't get this guy, I had really had no story. And um, and and also, um, I was just really interested in talking to him and understanding why, in God's name, a person decides that they're gonna that they can beat the house. I mean, talk about the capacity to aspire. <laughs> and uh, so we anyway. Um, if you uh, read the piece, you'll find out what happens. But I'm here to yeah, tell the story. Yeah, we, we we read it. Um, there there are great um, a great ma- many Evan stories to recommend. I'm your Chocolate City story about uh, the African community in in Guangzhou. I thought that mm-hmm. was a, a great one. It was one of the ones that really sticks in my mind. Jeremy, do you have any f- favorites? I know I know you were really fond of the Macau story. Yeah, well that one. Yeah, I mean, so that, I think that I, I liked your writing on Ai Weiwei too, Evan. I thought I mean, there's a, a mostly written about Ai Weiwei, but I think... uh, It's a really interesting problem, essentially. How do you write about Ai Weiwei, Mm. right? I mean, and... um, I mean, how... Part of the problem is this... I think the problem for any any writing about China, which is that how do you explain... um, some any phenomenon, but Ai Weiwei is a particularly difficult one, to people who are not familiar with China without really dumbing it down. Right. Yeah. It's... I mean, in a way, I've had a weird experience where um, I was at a, I mean, in a way, I feel like I, you know, when you write about Ai Weiwei, sometimes you think that you're saying one thing, and but people are actually hearing another thing when you write it. So if, I'll give an example of what I mean, which is like, I went to, there was a documentary that was made about him, right. Alison um, Clayman's documentary, and uh, it was screening in New York City, and she'd asked me to go and do a Q&A after the screening to kind of talk about him and his situation. This is maybe well, you're interviewed in the last year. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so afterwards, people are asking questions, and they're smart questions. People are, you know, but these are not, this is a non-expert audience. This is people living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, and what they know about Chinese art and descent was mostly from that film at that point and probably what one reads in the usual publications. And somebody raised their hand afterwards and said, you know, I'm, I feel um, I'm very sympathetic towards Ai Weiwei and I want to know how I can send him money to support him. And what was so interesting to me about that was even if you think what he's doing is incredibly important, as a lot of people do, money's not his problem. That's not <laughs> the issue at the moment. And I was kind of in this awkward position where I said, well, I don't think that that's really that's not necessarily what one does in response to this. Um, and I didn't have a particularly good answer. Well, I mean, I mean, my solution is I write about maybe, it. Maybe he'd, he'd read about Chinese people actually giving him money. I mean, throwing like paper yeah. airplanes made it. That's true. But in a sense, but the, you know, the difference between, one of the interesting things is that if a Chinese person gives him money, there's something politically 
um, noble about that. Right. When a foreigner gives him money, it changes the whole ecosystem it's, it's of how he fits patronizing. in. Well, it becomes, di- I mean, for one thing, it changes how he's regarded by other Chinese people, and it changes kind of his role as a political ingredient. There is also something wonderful about American culture that as a non-American, I, I can praise <laughs> the two of you on. Um, I mean, like my wife, who is a musician, f- finds that in America, if you say, oh, I've just got this new CD, your American friends will say, oh, where can I buy it? Or can I, can I buy a, buy a CD, you know, can I buy it? Can I support you? And in China, if you're a musician and you say you have a new CD, your friends say, oh, can you give, give me, me a copy? A copy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, this happens to me all the time. I, this is this is something, a, a policy that I'm you trying to show? instill. You've got to show, ah, free tickets. Exactly, right. Yeah. I mean, no, we're not giving you, free, you know, to show your respect to the musicians, you buy tickets. And yeah. My wife now really understands this, and so she's always telling her friends, no, I'm not going to comp you tickets to my husband's show. Yeah, it's yeah, like, I sometimes think about that when I, you know, like if if we the writers aren't buying other people's books, then our industry is really doomed. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> My wife doesn't like it that I make us have two subscriptions to the New York Times. She's like, that's that's, that's, a that's overkill. I, mean, that's, I don't know. That's I'm a really fundamentalist. Yeah. Does she have to subscribe to the New Yorker? I'm Hasidic on this score. I have yeah. to admit. Uh, well, she actually, has her own New Yorker. We, we do actually subscribe oh. to the New Yorker. You have two well, subscriptions. No, I mean, no I feel, we have I one. I'm, I admit, I admit you get it. the comp. I admit okay. it. I, admit, I comp my wife. <laughs> I've probably written you like 20 emails over the over the last five years asking, "Hey, can you send me that?" A PDF yeah, I figure on a piece by. I think that's like a great thing to be able to do. But I just always think, if I'm not subscribing to the New York Times, then who in God's name is going to subscribe? Yeah, no, fair point. All of you cheapskate <laughs> faces listening to Seneca for free, go out and subscribe to at least one publication yeah. now. Yeah. Um, I, I recommend Sinicism by you know, Bill Bishop. He really needs it. Yeah, that's memory. actually, yeah. yeah. Here, here. Right. Okay. That's going to stand in for recommendations today. I, I have a question about that. Why? I mean, if people, if Bill started charging, do you think everybody would do it? I don't know. I, 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 mean, I don't understand human behavior at all, so... Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. It. It's always difficult to go from free to paid, is my experience. Yeah, you've done. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you, you dubbed him the China Watcher's China Watcher, which I think was was probably really good for business. So. Uh, well, I just think about the fact that you know, it's in the simplest like calculation, would you be willing to do without it? And a lot of people, for that, would, the answer would be no. It's a very I, I, valuable I just thing. Buy him an occasional, you know, scotch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Comp him a cigar once in a while. So uh, one last thing. Okay, so Jim mm-hmm. Fallows. Um, who, like you, spent some you know years here and then has gone back. Uh, he's talked about the the many worlds that that one discovers um, while working as a journalist here in China, as one does in any complex society. You know, it, it's all I mean, each has its own sort of um, internal politics, its own patois, its own weird hierarchy and weird um, you know idiosyncrasies. Um, whether we're talking about like high school music competitions or the fashion world or, or professional sports or whatever. What, what are some of the more memorable or bizarre uh, or surprising worlds that you've stumbled into here in China? Yeah, I have to say I love the subcultures that you run into, and that's one of the things that organizes my thinking about this place, is that this is a period in which people have been able for the first time to self-define as something you tribes know. You know. yeah that uh, i you know you want you say i'm a oh, I'm, I'm a metal guy or i'm right. a this or i'm a that i once went to um in 2005 or 6 i remember there was a, a a kind of self-improvement craze that was going around and it was called top human um <laughs> and it was this combination of sort of religion and business and a pyramid scheme 
<laughs> that is the perfect China story. Yep. Yeah, I thought so. And I was just fascinated by it. And it was called Top Human. So I went and I got somebody to introduce me to them. And I went to a meeting of it. And we're sitting in the audience. And there's sort of 300 scrubbed, clean, strivers, apple-cheeked, upper, you know, aspiring middle-class Chinese people who I was just – and it was this energy in the room. And I felt honestly like I was in – like a church revival in, in California in about 1915. I mean, it was just this amazing <laughs> experience. And we're going around and we're doing this kind of slightly um, mysterious uh, hand motions. I remember we had to put our arms in the air for some reason that wasn't clear to me. There was a lot I couldn't really You were understand. participating. I was participating. Yeah, and problems. at the end, and at one point we're putting our hands together and we're kind of pushing back and forth. In any event, the, long, uh, the net effect of this was supposed to be success, self-awareness, I think the term they used was that we were going to see into our psychology, which I thought sounded great. And and the other thing is, you know, after all, look, this is what people have been trying to do since Freud. One of the things I love about these kinds of communities in China is that oftentimes the, the, the destination is the same. It's about self-awareness. It's about money. It's about happiness, whatever your root is, you know. And so in the end um, – the people at Top Human, I greeted them with a big smile, and I said, I want to hear more. I want to learn more about this. And they said, don't come back. You're, you're not, you're, this isn't a good place for you. It's, you're not very welcome here. And then within about a year or two, uh, the founders had been arrested and the organization <laughs> had been shut down. But that's the best story I never wrote. Uh, a pity. But you did write. I mean, you mentioned Freud. You wrote that great um, Freud in China piece. Uh, yeah, I, I got very interested in Chinese Freudians for the same reason. Right. Why? Another why? weird little world. You know, right. And why, why are Freud? people into right. Freud? And it's kind of as, as the West is discarding Freud. You know. Yeah, and and in the end, I felt like actually Chinese people who were interested in Freud were probably going to do the same to him that they did with Marx, which was they kind of picked it clean, the useful bits, and sent him packing. Um, <laughs> Hey, so you know, we, we ran long today, and so I think we're going to skip recommendations. But we've already, you know, like I said, we've, we've made plenty of them along the way. Um, you know, and I hope listeners can now see why we're going to so dearly miss Evan here. Um, Thanks, guys. We, we want to have him back soon. We're glad to have a chance to turn the tables on you. And uh, it's, it's fun, man. And, uh, My pleasure. Thanks we'll for having me. We'll see you going in. away. We'll be, we'll be I'll end be back of the soon. tyranny of, of, of Evan and, and Yeah, Sarah. yeah. Don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger. Okay. And uh, folks at home, take care, and we will uh, see you next week. Take care. Bye. Bye.